Welcome to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Each week on Vernacular, we explore the art of being truly and fully human. Most of the time, that means that Sally and I chat for 15 to 20 minutes about a topic, general or specific, and how it helps us understand what it means to be human. But we don't have all the answers, so occasionally we invite guests on the show to help us tackle this question in the context of their job or hobby, current events, or pop culture. Thanks for joining us as we practice the art of being human. All right, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. Today we are joined by someone who's been on the show uh, several times before. She's a close friend of ours, and that is Muriel Renault. So Muriel, welcome back to Vernacular. It's great to be here. Always great to have you. Now, today we're talking about what disability and body diversity have to do with being human. So we've been talking this season of our of our show all about these various facets of life and how they relate to being human. And we thought you'd be a really good person to come talk to us about this one. Longtime listeners will remember the episode that we recorded last summer, about a year ago now, almost exactly, I think, about yeah. your experience parenting Rosie, uh, who we love, your daughter Rosie. She has a genetic condition with, uh, I think, what we can say is an uncertain prognosis. So if you don't mind, bring our listeners up to date on that experience. How is Rosie doing since we spoke with you last time on the podcast? So overall, she's doing great. She turned two this past May, and she is just delightful. She's a spitfire. She's super fun. Health-wise, um, she hasn't had any major complications with her health other than the skeletal issue that we talked about last time, but that did progress um, pretty quickly over last summer and early autumn, and she did actually undergo a lower limb amputation on her left leg in November of last year. So um, Sally was there for that, actually, and, yeah. um, which was wonderful. Yeah, yeah, Lucy and I were able to travel to be there for her surgery, and I mean, it's amazing to have been there at in the hospital with her when she had her amputation, and then just have seen her again this past May running around and very it seems like hardly limited by by the fact that she actually doesn't have a lower leg yeah definitely and i know that i know that rosie has many challenges ahead and i know that as her parent you're presented with those challenges daily but at the same time i know that rosie's been a huge inspiration for so many people in your life or even just people who have come across her instagram feed and i see the the instagram comments about how rosie's inspiring these people every single day because she's just such a fighter and we were able to spend some time with you guys in may and see that firsthand i mean rosie is i mean she's been through so much as someone who's so young and she still just has such a heart a fighting heart about her and it's really inspiring for us to see as well yeah, I really, you know, I like to try to be careful um, about those, the the framework of inspiration, only because I don't want her to be um, pressured with, you know, the the need sure, to the be burden sort of extraordinary, of, yeah. right, in any particular way. But I do think what what she shows, what through just being herself, is that um, you know it is possible, and I think very very common to have what many people would view as sort of terrible or like very burdensome conditions and just live a very happy, active, full and meaningful life. So in that respect, you know, I think her story can be inspirational, um, but in a way that should open our eyes to the fact that this is actually kind of something universal about the human condition. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's a great um, segue because I wanted to kind of set our listeners up 
with um, for this this conversation by talking a little bit about what kind of ignited your passion for teaching kids about disabilities and body diversity. I mean, obviously, aside from Rosie being in your life, but um, I know just through conversations with you, you've definitely had experiences where um, kids have pointed to Rosie's leg and made comments, and and you know, there's definitely been this lack of understanding and experience of otherness with. Rosie as she's learned to walk with her um, prosthesis. So yeah, just kind of talk about maybe even a specific story of where you just really started thinking about, wow, this is, there's a hole in our education system. Yeah. So, um, right. So, I mean, to to some degree, what I, I started looking into this topic when I wanted to get books for my own kids to sort of prepare them for Rosie's amputation. And I realized it is almost impossible. I mean, I've done a ton of research and I've found some, but it's very difficult to find children's books that have body diverse characters. And I thought that's really strange because people with disabilities are everywhere in the world. Why do we not see them in our children's books? And I think this lack, you know, it sounds kind of silly, like, well, why does it matter what the characters in the books look like. They're all just kids. But the thing is that if you're not exposed to people who look differently from you than when you encounter them in the world, which you will because they're there, you don't know what to do. And parents also don't know what to do. So, um, you know, a couple of months ago, we were out for dinner at this brewery in our town that has this big open outdoor area. So it's a great place to take kids. And, um, you know, Rosie was just playing with all these kids, many of them older than her. And at some point, you know, they were being friendly and kind to her, but at some point, one of them, you know, started commenting on her leg, and then they, they all kind of gathered around, and they were looking and pointing, and not in necessarily a mean way, but in a way that, you know, was clearly not, wasn't kind or particularly polite, but they just didn't know how to interact with someone who had a leg that looked like hers. So we had a, you know, a good and long and kind of draining conversation, but, um, it, you know, they, they, these kids were essentially starting from nothing in terms of their understanding of how bodies can look different and how people can move around the world differently. And that's something that we need to work on societally to sort of give kids more tools so that when they encounter body diversity, it's not a shock to them. I think that's great. Yeah. And I want to talk about books later in our conversation because I think that is a prime way to teach kids about other people who are different than they are. Um, But I also was thinking, even on the flip side of it, not only for kids who maybe don't have body diversity in their family to see kids in books who do, for the kids like Rosie who have a prosthesis to be able to see children in books that are like them and be able to say oh wow there's a kid who's just like me and because maybe they you know maybe Rosie wouldn't interact I mean you guys do because you have more access to people who are also you know using your same doctors and so forth but it's probably encouraging for a young child to see someone like them in a book that they got from the library. You know I uh this is a quick story but we had dinner recently with a another little boy who has a different condition than Rosie, but he's, he's also an amputee. And um, we hadn't talked about it beforehand because I figured, you know, my kids can just take it in stride. And when Rosie saw his foot, which is the same kind of prosthetic foot that she has, she just squealed with joy. She was so excited to see another, I know. And it really struck me because I had never thought about that before, but my feet look like most other people's feet. And it would never have occurred to me until I had that experience that it would be really important for kids to feel like they were part of a you know a community even just physically that there were people who looked like them and 
um, that was a really meaningful and powerful moment for me. For well, sure. I, I think it totally makes sense too, because even adults do that on a regular basis. You know, I mean, I'm thinking of, uh, I, as an Eagles fan, I go out and I see somebody who's wearing an Eagles hat and I think, oh, this person has some sort of experience that they can share with me. Maybe they've been to, to the link and watched an Eagles game. Maybe they watch every game and season. Maybe we can bond over this or someone who has some past in common, you know, veterans who see each other, they immediately identify and get excited and often visibly excited that this person has a shared experience. And so with kids, when there are sort of less points of their life that are identifiable as being shared experiences, it makes sense that, that one disabled child can look at another one and squeal with delight because this person has an obvious shared experience. Right. Well, and it's part of being, I mean, this is a huge part of being human, right? That we're embodied. And you guys have talked about this on the show before. Yeah. Um, and so much, you know, it's so easy for people who, who have bodies that are typical, at least in, you know, in the ways that culturally we have deemed important to not think about how important it is for people who have, you know, atypical physical presentation, but are still fully human to be able to experience community um, in their bodies. Can we use that as a launch point to talk a little bit about what we mean by disability? Because how we how we define the term is really interesting to me. And Mira, you just talked about how, uh, at least in, in in some respects, it's atypical uh, bodies. And I don't want to be flippant here at all, but you know, I have an atypical body because I have red hair. And I mean, that sounds really flippant. I'm really not trying to be flippant, but like, where do we draw the line for disability? How much of an atypical body is a disability or how much of it is required to be a disability does that make sense right and i wonder if i if there's part of this whole in our understanding and education about disability and understanding how what it has to do with being human how much of that is because of the fact that we we don't just think of it as body diversity right what if we just replace the term disability with i I too don't want to be flippant but if we replace the term disability with body diversity then would that be more accessible as as a human trait because we i think when we when we think about humanity we think oh of course we're all diverse and so that i th- that to me is what disability has to do with being human is that we're all diverse we're all different right. we're not cookie cutter robots for, of each other right and some of us have working limbs sure. and some of us don't and um and, it, and you know some of us have learning disabilities and some of us are mensa members and every, everywhere in between and yeah, that is certainly an aspect of diversity. But Mary, I'll be curious to hear your thoughts because I know you're much more familiar with this topic than we are. Yeah, I mean, I I really identify with a lot of what you guys are saying. And that was where I started, really. Like the term disability made me uncomfortable because I thought, well, this is this is making a sort of a value judgment that, you know, this way to be is less good than other ways to be. Um, and the more reading I did, the more I realized that, um, so I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the term, the social model of disability. No. Um, Enlighten but, me, please. Okay, so, yeah, so I'm not an expert on it. I'm going to give you the, like, uh, layman's version. But basically, the idea is the term disability does not reflect a negative value judgment on the body of the, the person with a disability. It reflects a judgment on the way that society has structured itself to um, make you know, whether it be physical or um, economic or other kinds of um, benefits or just access to things unavailable to the person because of the way that they're different. So, so if I can maybe give an example, sure. 
and you can tell me if I have it right or not. So the fact that the vast majority of buildings in the U.S. don't have uh, wheelchair ramps, that would be a, a part of the environment that would make someone who's in a wheelchair disabled. Exactly, exactly. Another really good example that's on my mind a lot right now, because Rosie's having some trouble with her prosthesis and um, hasn't been able to wear it, is that uh, when you take a kid to a playground and the playground surface is something like wood chips, um, uh, a oh, yeah, or can't, stones. Can't. Right. We were at yeah. a park today, and I was like, this is hard for me to walk in. <laughs> right, right. right. Um, it's not accessible to a kid who can't walk on shoed feet. It's not accessible for a kid using a walker. Um, so that is a way in which a child with a, you know, with a sort of limb difference or a coordination deficit is disabled from engaging in this human activity of playing with peers, but not because their body is less valuable, but because the question of accessibility has not been considered by society. So I use the term disability because the people within that community have embraced it to reflect the fact that they are disabled by the decisions that other people make about how society is going to be structured. And if that word makes us uncomfortable, what that should lead us to do is work to change those structures. Does that make sense? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think too that, um, yeah, when you were saying that uh, being having those disabilities does not make them less valuable, it doesn't make them less human. It's just that there people in society who have structured society as such that people who have body certain body diversities are disabled. Um, they, I think, they just haven't opened their minds to the vast range of what it means to be human. Right, and and it's not that someone who's disabled is any less human or should be any less taken care of or provided for, but we kind of just have forgotten to kind of count them in in something as simple as the creation of a playground. Right. So can I ask a question that may be a little bit personal and maybe you're not prepared to answer and that's totally fine if not? Sure. But that would that would just be, so given this definition that you've talked about with disability and using the social model of disability, you as a parent of a child who is an amputee and who is disabled because society is not set up for her flourishing in that regard, clearly via the social model of disability, Rosie has a disability. But how, to what extent do you raise her with the mindset of this is a disability versus the mindset of this is body diversity and, you know, everything can be overcome? Does that make but sense? society is still catching up. Yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, yeah, that is not a question I was prepared to answer, but um, I can take a whack at it and maybe we can kind of talk it out. I mean, I... Probably the most important thing for me and my husband as we are raising our daughter with regard to her body is that she, that's her story. And she is in charge of how she identifies. She is in charge of how she conceives of herself. I mean, she's two. So right now she doesn't conceive of herself in any way that we can understand, you know, abstractly, but as she gets older, um, you know, there's there's a debate within the disability community about the the use of the term person with a disability versus the term disabled person. So that's um, person first language versus identity first language. And I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but um, we don't 
uh, we kind of, you know, we use both terms. We want her to hear both of them. And then when she gets older, she will decide whether she identifies as a disabled person or a person with a disability because that right. okay. has to do with how she conceives of herself. Um, I don't, we, I don't love the framework of, uh, everything, you know, that, that this, you know, this is her body and it's good and she can overcome all of these things. Right. Except right. in the, except in the context that we would talk about overcoming adversity with, you know, any child under any set of circumstances. I don't actually think it's the responsibility of people who are um, societally marginalized to overcome those obstacles. I think it's the responsibility of the people like myself in the society who benefit from the privilege of the inequitable way that the society is structured to, to change those, those things. Um, I don't think it's fair to a kid to say, well, yeah, you've been given this, you know, lot in life. And, you know, I think she, she is clearly already thriving. I'm not saying she has no chance at a happy, full, meaningful life. That's the opposite of what I'm saying, but I don't want her to get the idea that, um, we have expectations for her that she's going to do incredible, amazing things in a way that we don't expect that of her brother because she got, you know, dealt this kind of crappy hand in the skeleton department. I don't know if that makes sense. I guess what I'm trying to say is I think, um, I think what we hope to teach her is that she is, you know, infinitely valuable in the same way that, every other human being is infinitely valuable and that um, the way that her body is configured doesn't change anything about that one way or the other. And I think probably too that we all have challenges in life, different challenges, and we're never going to be able to overcome every challenge. And so for her, her challenges will probably be greater than most people's and, and and she can still have a flourishing, completely, truly human life, even if the, those challenges are not completely smoothed out right. throughout her lifetime. Yeah, and I think, Muriel, what you've, what you've articulated as the vision that you and John have decided to move forward with your parenting of Rosie uh, with is it, it, just, it makes a lot of sense because I've thought a lot about how the expectations that you place on a child make such a big difference in their own self-conception yeah. and their measure of their own self-worth. And I think it's totally unfair to a disabled child to raise them with some sort of expectation that you, you mentioned this at the very beginning of our conversation, that they need to be an inspiration to other people or that they need to overcome this sort of this, you know, hand that nature has dealt them or, or however we want to talk about, you know, the, the, whatever biological situation they find themselves in. I think it's really bad to raise them you know, to basically, I guess, for lack of a more eloquent phrase, to have a chip on their shoulder, because that's not a good way to raise a child. Yeah, no. And just really quickly on that point, one thing I've been reflecting on a lot lately, because it just keeps coming up. um, I have a lot of really well-meaning, really kind people send me, you know, YouTube clips or Facebook articles or just anything they come across that has to do with a child with any kind of disability doing anything extraordinary that makes it on the news. Um, and I think the point is supposed to be like, hey, this is so cool, and I, I get that. And I think it's great when kids with disabilities do remarkable things. But I, there's this undercurrent to me that conveys this expectation that for a person with a disability to 
matter in the world. They have to do something really extraordinary. Right. Um, yeah. And I just, that's just not true. It's just not true. Well, I think that's also transposing into, unfortunately, into the raising of a, a child with a disability or a disabled child, the achievement culture that we are a part yes. of. Yeah. And yes. it's like another version of focusing on your child's achievement instead of focusing on their character. And Muriel, you and John are great about praising your kids for their character. And I was thinking um, the other day while listening to a podcast about how important it is to make sure that when you're praising your kids, it's you're praising them for aspects of their character and not for right. their achievements. So they don't grow up thinking that that's just what you're expecting from them to achieve, achieve, achieve. And that's kind of like the subtle implication with respect yeah. to – um, with respect to someone like Rosie. Yes. And I think all three of us have had experiences, you know, without any specific physical disability of people putting expectations on us that weren't realistic or fair and, you know, experiencing negative fallout from that. So I don't want to do that to either of my children, but I think it's much no, more likely not. to happen. It's much more likely to happen to Rosemary because she has this thing that in the eyes of many people renders her sort of like so different set apart in this way. That's like a, you know, a difference of degree or a difference of kind rather than a difference of degree. And I just don't think that's true. Well, yeah, I think it's really hard because if you're a disabled person, you're already starting out behind in that sense. You know, if, if someone is setting the metric for success to you as some level of achievement and you're disabled, you're already starting out behind the power curve. And so how much harder is it for you to actually attain what you think will be meaningful to the people that love you and have set those expectations for you. Okay. Well, I think it, it just given this conversation, it goes without saying, I hope that it's important to help kids and adults to understand these kinds of truths. But um, what I'd like to talk about before we end here is how do we communicate these complicated ideas to kids and adults of all ages, and especially our kids at young ages. And um, Muriel, you were talking about the language that we use, but also the books that we read. And I'm really interested in hearing what your research has uncovered. Yeah. So first of all, I um, I think that kids actually are not the problem. Um, kids kind of instinctively understand difference as everywhere around them, they notice it. Um, and what our responsibility as adults, I think more than anything else, is to just kind of not get in the way of them accepting it. And where the problem comes in often from the perspective of parents is that parents get uncomfortable because they don't want to be perceived as rude. And so they try to shush the child or in some way quiet down a child who has questions. And that gives the kid the impression that there's something shameful about the situation. So Can I jump um, in here with a quick story? Yeah, please. So I, I think this will illustrate what you're just what, what you were talking about just now. I was uh, out with Esther the other day. I think we were out in front of our, our gym. We go to the YMCA. And a man walked into the gym as we were walking out. And this man had a prosthesis. He had, he was a, I think a below knee amputee, or maybe it was just a, a foot amputee, but regardless, he had a prosthesis uh, for on, on one of his legs. Right. And Esther noticed this because children are very observant and they notice these things. And she said, not quietly to me as the man was walking past daddy, that man has a leg just like Rosie and just her natural fascination with it was was interesting because of what you're saying. That's not how an adult responds, right? right? But also the fact that she identified it with Rosie, I thought was really 
yeah. it was really cute and meaningful too. And I thought that was cool. But then I, as an adult, I mean, as you're talking, I'm being convicted, Muriel, because I didn't know how to respond to that. I think what I said was something like, yeah, isn't that cool, Esther? And I'm not sure if that was a bad thing to say. I don't know if that was a good thing to say, but I really didn't know how to respond. So that was just kind of how I responded. You know, I didn't I didn't want to do the shh, shh thing and right. and sort of shush my child because I don't think that's the right way to respond. Right. right. But and, and also didn't want to say like, oh yeah, isn't that sad, Esther? Because that's, I mean, right. it's not right. it's not sad either. Like I just I wasn't sure totally how to totally sure how to respond. Maybe you have a better idea for how I could respond in situations like that. Um, but I think that's a, a great example that illustrates exactly what you're talking about. Kids are much more natural around these things than adults are, and adults kind of get uncomfortable because I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing or, or hurting somebody, and I certainly don't want to do that. You know, the man who's walking by me is disabled, and he has probably had a lot of challenges in his life because of that, and I don't want to add to it or make him feel like the other. I don't want to right, otherize him. Right. And so, I mean, yeah, what do I say in that situation? And I'm not asking you specifically, maybe you don't have a, a clear thought there, but I think it illustrates some of the problems in, in, in respect to this. Right. No, what I love about this story is that um, it points to what has also been my experiences with my experience with this, and I have had a lot of them, um, which is that kids very naturally connect and humanize. And that's, right. I think, I mean, I'm not an expert, but from the reading that I've done, that's the instinct that we want to encourage, right? So what I tend to do in situations like that, and it comes up with my kids more, you know, with other kinds of um, just visible differences, like hair color, or body size, or anything like that. Um, it's just to, to sort of say like, yeah, you know, people come in all kinds of shapes and sizes or people move around the world in all different kinds of ways. Right. You want to go say hi to that person and encourage your child to engage with the, that person that they've observed as a person in a, in a physical way on a, on a human level. Yeah, right. That's um, the other thing is in, and this is the, I've just become convinced of this and that story from the brewery that I said, told earlier, um, really sort of cemented this for me is that we need to, as parents, talk to our kids about these topics outside of the acute situation, because it's a good thing to learn as a child that it's not polite to make comments on other people's bodies. Um, it's just that, that those acute moments are not the time to say, shh, don't say right, that. Exactly. Then that can, it conveys something you don't want to convey. So at, in another context, say like, hey, have you ever noticed that you know, people have different color hair and, you know, different heights and different, um, you know, sizes. And one thing about being human is that it's polite to just not comment on other people's bodies. But talk about that outside of those situations and talk about, you know, expose them to different kinds of bodies and different kinds of, you know, ways of moving around the world and different kinds of talking and communicating and, you know, show them in books and in the TV shows that they watch um, and in their toys that there are just so many different good ways to be in the world um, so that when they encounter someone as they inevitably will, who has a disability or you know, some kind of difference that is prominent, they won't be shocked by it. They will accept it as, of course, like this is what it means to be human, that we are different in these ways and that it's a good thing. And I think too, um, on the point of humanizing the other person, I know we've read this one book where like a dog learns to talk and then the dog just like says whatever's on its mind. And there was one point when he pointed out that this guy was like really big and really tall and the guy in the book was upset by that. And Esther was like, well, what's wrong with saying that? And I 
I hope I said the right thing, but I just said that, well, we don't know how that guy feels about it. No one likes having like someone pointing fingers at them and kind of singling them out in a crowd and making everyone look at them. So just, um, you know, out of care for their feelings, we don't want to put them on the spot and make everyone look at them all of a sudden. Um, but so I think just like thinking about their, the other person's feelings in the interest of the other person's feelings, we're not going to single them out and maybe make them feel uncomfortable. Well, I love that for two reasons. One, she has not yet absorbed, you know, this bonkers societal idea that we have that like, you know, being big is bad, right? Right. right. That's one thing, right? right? And you don't want to convey that idea to her. You don't want to say like, oh, well, it's shameful to be big and that's why, or just to be that's why you different shouldn't mention or it. just stand out for some right. particular reason. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and, and kids don't, you know, they don't attach a sort of value judgment to any of these things they notice. They're just curious about what's happening and why. So I think, you know, I think that's a good, that's a good answer. And it's good to just expose kids to difference as a good and natural and inevitable part of what it means to be human and then to sort of teach them courtesy as another part of what it means to be human so that when they encounter people they aren't shocked or you know moved to burst out with observations about other people's bodies and to be clear I'm not an expert on this okay I have a three-year-old and I'm still working with him on you know not commenting on the size of people's bellies or things like that and um you know it's 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 tricky, but it's really important, vital work. Well, I think this has been a great conversation, and unfortunately, we didn't get to talk about specific books or titles or anything, but I think that's something we can easily include in our show notes. Um, if you have recommendations for parents to read or ki- parents to read to their kids, I know that you've um, collected quite a number of resources that I think would be great to share with our listeners. Absolutely. Yeah, that's easy to do in written form anyway, because I don't know them all off the top of my head. Oh, yeah, sure. That's the perfect plan. Um, Great. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation, as always. I always love to talk to you guys. Come back and visit again soon. Um, And thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Muriel. And to our listeners, I know Muriel just mentioned this. She's not an expert. We are even less of experts than Muriel is since she's the one who has a disabled child and has spent a lot of time thinking through these problems and reading about them and talking to other people who who have thought a lot about disability and body diversity. So Sally and I are not pretending to be experts by any stretch. And hopefully this conversation has not offended anybody, but if it has, that was certainly not our intent and we'd love to continue this conversation. So if you have thoughts about... Uh, something we missed or something we could have talked about better or more carefully or in a more sensitive way or in a more meaningful way, we'd love to hear from you. So please go ahead and do that. In the meantime, Muriel, thank you so much for joining us. We'll talk to you next time.